Good morning, church family. This week I was, uh, well, I should say on Friday, specifically just scanning the news headlines um, and uh, what I suspected I would find easily, I did, even just eight days away from when we celebrate the one who we call the Prince of Peace. Uh, the news was uh, just loaded with anything but. Here are some of the headlines I came across just at a quick glance. Viral social media posts warn of alleged shootings and schools across America are on high alert. Death toll rises to five after tornadoes and windstorms blast through the Great Plains and Midwest. Thai model, as in Taiwanese model, beaten and robbed on the New York City subway. Baby bath seats recalled over drowning hazards. School board meeting about mascot turns into chaos. In India, even the monkeys were getting in on it. Enraged monkeys kill town's entire population of dogs. Which, I don't know why, but it's kind of funny, but it's not. I don't. We're here to talk about sinners in need of a savior today, so there you go. And then, of course, everything going on with the COVID-19 pandemic, there's just so much unrest in this world. I think it's safe to say, not just because we're talking about peace today, that on the surface of things, what may be most evidently lacking in this world is peace, especially with how readily available information is to us. I was thinking about, this has nothing really to do with anything, but this is just Daniel the Pilgrim processing for a moment. Were we really made to become aware all at once, simultaneously, of the mass suffering and lack of peace and unrest and turbulence in our world. I just find myself having to fight against callousness at times. I wish that I only had an awareness of the pain and suffering and needs and lack of peace within my immediate spheres of influence. I feel like my capacities would be enlarged, but I, I feel sometimes so burdened and weighed down by all that's going wrong all at once because we live in this um, global world right now, really, global community, global village, where we're aware of everything all at one time. All that just to say, we need peace. We are people in search of peace. I say we as in not just us in this room, but universally humanity, people everywhere are in search of peace and oftentimes make mistakes in, in where they seek it. Sometimes people will look for that within themselves believing themselves to be innately good, that ultimately good will overcome evil, that ultimately the good ones will win out over the few rotten eggs of the world. Others may get a little bit closer, recognizing they don't have the capacity within themselves to ultimately bring about peace amidst the chaos in this world, but they're looking out there nonetheless for solutions to the world. Education reforms, the right leaders in office, better forms of government to these types of things in hopes that peace is possible, ultimate peace. Of course, that's what people said after World War I, that some of these different reforms and measures could be taken to ensure that something like that never happened again, and less than a decade later it did, with four times the amount of people dying in World War II, 80 million, 3% of the world's population. And listen, while I'm thankful for good leaders, with high character, while I'm thankful uh, for beneficial education reform, thankful for forms of government that truly seek to protect people, uh, that truly seek to empower their people to be uh, productive contributors to society and to community. Ultimately, these things aren't the solutions. 
to state what I hope is obvious as well, things are not getting better. As much as we, we, may, we may cling to that hope purely from a world's perspective. However, I will say this, if there's one silver lining to the overwhelming amount of news of how things aren't getting better, of the lack of peace and the unrest in this world, all the fighting, the strife, the disunity, the death, the violence, maybe it's this, that people aware of this would become disillusioned first with themselves, the solution within, and secondly, with a solution outside in this world and look beyond this world for a solution. Alistair Begg is a uh, pastor and preacher who I enjoy listening to, not the least of which is because of his Scottish accent. And um, he speaks on this illusion of peace in our world that we so desperately cling to. And he was using uh, the book of Ecclesiastes which we believe Solomon to have written as a case study. And I appreciate how he said it, so I'm just going to read a quote to you. Uh, he being Alistair Begg, speaking of that book. He says, The preacher, that being Solomon, who writes in the very heart of our Bibles a book called Ecclesiastes, described, describes his own tortured search for peace and for contentment. And he's honest enough to say that he conducted it without reference to God. He tried to unscramble the riddle of life by simply looking under the sun, right, at this world for a solution. He took what was here, and he took what was now, and he took what was available, and he said, now, perhaps, in these things, I will be able to find peace. And if you read it for yourself, you will discover that wisdom left him frustrated and restless. Work made him tired and angry. Leisure caused him pain, and stuff just made him sick and sad. He lived the American dream long before there was an America and told us it was a dead-end street. But nobody wanted to believe it then, and frankly, nobody wants to believe it now. Resonates. The thing is, it's interesting. I, I suppose I could argue that we have a leg up on the rest of the world because if there's any place in this world where we are primed to become disillusioned by alternative means of securing peace, it would be here, in America. Nowhere else in the world does the freedom to accumulate wealth and knowledge and comfort and security exist more than it does here at our disposal. In other words, if we can't find peace here, when we have all of that readily available to us, where possibly could we find it in this world. Conversely, the other way to argue this is when you hear the testimonies and stories of our brothers and sisters in Christ that are in cultures and countries in which they face far harsher environments than we do, persecution, suffering of various kinds, economic hardships, and yet testify to the surpassing peace that they experience despite their circumstances. So where does that come from? Well, that's what I hope to answer at least in part today. Uh, if you've been with us over the past four weeks uh, in this season of Advent, we've been ramping up our hearts in preparation to celebrate Jesus' coming by looking to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, um, in which we have looked at several names for this coming Messiah. Today we'll be talking about what it means that he is the Prince of Peace. If the other names that we've looked at so far are unpacking the things that are characteristic to his nature, then 
Jesus as the Prince of Peace does at least that, just as God is love itself. I believe Jesus is peace itself, not only just had perfect peace. It not only unpacks his nature, but it also is descriptive of what, as the coming king, he plans to bring in fullness, the outcome of his reign as king in this universe. Peace, a byproduct, an outcome of his rulership. Now, you may say to yourself as you look at this world around you, okay, but man, how does any of this that is going on around us today reconcile with somebody who is a prince of peace? But that flows out of or stems from confusion and misunderstanding as to what that actually means and how that actually works itself out. Because listen, if Jesus' objective when he came the first time was to usher in universal peace and prosperity on the spot, then he was an utter failure. Because instead, what we saw was that his life in the end was the antithesis of what we would call and describe as peace as he died a horrible death on a torture instrument on the cross. So no, instant, external, universal peace was not his objective in the incarnation in this fallen, broken world. That said, Jesus being Prince of Peace does mean that one day there will be a universal, external, complete, whole peace outside of us as we maybe tend to think about it. And I love one of the places that this actually comes through in our Bibles, the description we get actually from Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9, where he's describing what this eternal kingdom will be like. Here's what he says. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Another poisonous snake. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But that, that description, beautiful as it may be and hope-evoking as it can and should be in our lives as Christians, is not yet. That's, a, that's an ultimate external peace in a kingdom that lies before us. It is a part of our Christian hope, but it, it doesn't mean at the same time that there's not possibility for peace now. Because the thing that is so powerful about Jesus being the Prince of Peace, as it applies to us here and now, is that there is a kind of peace that is not dependent upon the world around us and the circumstances around us. And that is good news. Because so many of us cling, wittingly or not, to this delusion of an ability to control life around us for our sense of peace. We don't have to do that. As I was thinking on what it means to us for Jesus to be the Prince of Peace. Passage came to mind from John chapter 14. John 14 is actually um, a chapter within five chapters in the book of John that's actually all one scene in the life of Jesus as he seeks to serve and teach his disciples on the night before he's betrayed and ultimately dies on the cross. So keep that in mind. The words that he says here that we're about to read we're on the night before his death. 
That comes through in John chapter 13, verse 1, the very beginning of this scene of these five chapters reads, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to his end. Speaking of the disciples there, Jesus knows. He knows what's about to come. He knows his life is about to end. He knows, at least to some degree, the manner in which it's about to end. That's why he is pleading with the Lord, if at all possible, for that cup to pass from him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet, what does he say then in the midst of this teaching, in this moment in his life and in his teaching of the disciples? In John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Remarkable words. When Jesus is on the cusp of what we know lie before him the very next day. So in our remaining couple minutes here, here's what I want to do. I want to answer two questions. Number one, what is the peace the world gives that is not like Jesus's? And secondly, what is the peace that is Jesus's that he gives to us? Kind of the flip side of that same coin. So what is the peace that the world gives that is not like Jesus's? Well, first let me just say that the world does offer to us a form of peace. Not all of it is necessarily bad. Right? The world offers us forms of protection, security, police, military. The world offers us Insurance policies, health insurance, life insurance, warranties on purchases that are important to us that we've bought. The world offers us locks for our doors. It offers us passwords for security for our accounts. It offers us antivirus software, keep viruses off our computers. It offers us retirement accounts so that we can have some money when we are old. There are hundreds of things like this, many of which you and I take advantage of, and I appreciate and am thankful for. But these forms of peace, as in the peace of mind that we seek to get from them, are not like the kind of peace Jesus gives because they are based in circumstances that can change. As easily as they come, they can go. And ultimately, you have no control over those things, neither do I. Retirement accounts can dissolve Overnight with a recession, life insurance can run out and then tra tragedy chooses to strike. Law enforcement can be nowhere to found at the moment that we need them. Locks can be picked. Computer hackers can bypass firewalls. Militaries can be defeated and sometimes turn on the very ones that they were in place to protect. Problem with the world's peace is that none of it can be ultimately counted on. So then what is the peace that Jesus, that is Jesus's first and foremost, I should say, and that in turn he gives to you and to I? All the forms of peace or peace of mind that we may seek to secure from the things I just identified, those are external things. They can come and go. But Jesus's peace is of the sort that it can never be taken from him, first of all, and then in turn from those of us who are in him, in him. That's going to be a key phrase that we'll take a deeper look at here in the next couple minutes. Again, though, you may say, well, okay, but in my honest moment, he lived an incredibly difficult life, especially those final few years of ministry, homeless, 
regularly persecuted, horrible suffering, ultimately death on the cross at the hands of men. How can that be a picture of peace? Well, that in and of itself is not, but he can still have perfect peace because his peace was not rooted in his circumstances, but in his status before God. Look at the very next verse with me in John chapter 14, verse 28. He says to his disciples, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. Here he's speaking of the Holy Spirit whom he'll send. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Why? Because I am going to the Father and the Father is greater than I. There is a lot to unpack in that verse, a lot of questions that raised my mind that I sought to answer, but for our sake today, suffice it to say that Jesus' source of peace, one thing we can derive, Jesus' source of peace is rooted in his joy. And his joy, as he tells us here, is rooted in his going to be with the Father. Never mind that the path between now and then for him included a cross. That's implied here, and yet his joy cannot be touched. And what happens is when our joy is secure, then our peace is secure, no matter the circumstances that are going on around us. So then the next question we can ask ourselves is why is Jesus' joy secure? If his source of joy is going to be with his Father, what's the basis for his security of that joy? Read on with me, John 14, 29 to 31. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. Here's the key phrase. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father, Rise now and let us go from here. He has no claim on me. Literally, Jesus is saying, he, Satan, the devil, the adversary, has nothing in me, as in nothing in me to accuse. Jesus is talking here about sin, the fact that he had no sin. He was sinless. He goes on to say that he did all that the Father commanded him. And only sin can hold us back, him back, from joy. And Jesus had no sin, so nothing could hold him back from his joy. And when our joy is secure, then our peace is unshakable. This is why Jesus says, John 16, verse 33, same teaching, same night, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, he says, just like I did. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Can you see how joy and peace are inextricably linked for Jesus? So can you also see why peace is so hard to come by in this world when our peace is not rooted in God? But in other things of this world that are fragile and fickle and fleeting, and in turn, therefore, so is our peace. It's why some of us are anxious a lot. Because there are things that our joy is ultimately invested in that we cannot control and we cannot hold on to. 
But there is, obviously, a way for us to have peace, Jesus says. Only one way, and that is in Christ. He says that in me you may have peace. It's a different way of him saying, my peace I give to you, which we already read in John 14, 27. So how do we get in on that peace? Isaiah, the prophet, says much later in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 4 to 6, um, he actually clues us in as to where this peace comes from and how we get in on it. This is a description he gives some 700, 700, 800 years before the coming of the Messiah of the suffering servant. He says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For the sake of brevity, I'll turn to the Apostle Paul in the New Testament in Colossians as he writes in chapter 1 and basically says more or less the same thing. For in him, he says, for in Jesus... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's speaking of the incarnation here, God becoming man. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on, uh, on earth or in heaven, making peace. How? By the blood of his cross. How then do we get on this peace? Well, on the cross, Jesus purchased our forgiveness. On the cross, Jesus' sacrifice satisfied God's wrath. On the cross, Jesus exchanged his righteousness for our unrighteousness, meaning he gave us his righteousness. And all of this is received through faith. And what happens when we receive that act of his on our behalf in faith is that his sinlessness then becomes ours so that your joy, like his, is always secure because it's not based anymore on something that can change, whether that be in this world or even your own fickleness. It's based on Jesus' sinlessness, which is now counted as your own. That's what it means to be in Christ. That's what the great hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Saved from wrath and made pure. We are saved from God's wrath. What are we saved for? So that you too and I can go to be with the Father. Jesus said, rejoice with me. He said, my joy is that I'm going to be with the Father. And nothing can prevent that, not even the cross. See, the difference between the peace that the world offers you and the peace that Jesus gives you is that his can never be taken away by anything you do. So that when your bank account disappears, when your physical abilities are in decline and you can no longer do the things that you love to do, when your dream job falls through, when your vacation plans don't pan out, when these things disappear and your cross is before you, you still have peace, just like Jesus, because you are in Christ. And because Satan now not only has no claim on Jesus, he has no claim on you, so that you too can rejoice 
because you get to go to be with the Father. All of this because we have a Prince of Peace. So let me leave you with these two questions now this morning to consider, and then I'll pray, and then we'll have a contemplative video like we have all the other weeks for you to listen to. Questions are this, is there something you were never meant to be able to control that causes you a lack of peace? Something in your life, you were never meant to be able to control that, but it causes you a lack of peace. And then how can the knowledge of what it means to be in Christ shelter you from your greatest source of anxiety in life? Let's pray. Father, I can't help but think of the words of Jesus to Martha, whom I identify with all too often. Martha, Martha, you were anxious and troubled about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen that, the one good portion, and that's to sit at my feet and learn from me. But God, that, that was made possible, not by anything we've done, but by what you've done, the shed blood of your son, Jesus, so that now we can find ourselves in him and acceptable to you and be assured that we can know the joy that he did of deep and abiding and intimate relationship with you that will be everlasting. We thank you for that. Lord, I pray for the hearts that are troubled and anxious about many things here today. Lord, I know that you are sure, sincere, and bold in truth, but you are also gentle as a dove and don't snuff out a smoldering wick. I pray you'd come alongside those who are anxious this morning, open their eyes, open the eyes of their heart. Many of these truths we've spoken of today from your word, I'm sure they know or have heard. But would you impute them drive them into our hearts in a deeper way than we've ever known before so that amidst all of the trials and circumstances around us that feel so chaotic and seem to have control over our sense of peace, we would find ourselves instead rooted in the one thing that can never be taken away from us, the joy that we can know of you never leaving or forsaking us, of being with you. Would you do that, Lord? I know that that is your heart's desire for us. We pray that you would do this by the power of your Holy Spirit, and we pray it for your glory and our greater joy. Amen.